0: Da 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 Good morning to our loyal WFYL listeners around the world. Welcome back to your Philadelphia Friday, only on Fox News Radio. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in once again, because you still have the right to hear and the right to be heard. We're here with you on 1180 AM and broadcasting real time at 1180WFYL.com. Coming to you straight from the birthplace of liberty, here in the greater Philadelphia area. And we continue to fight day in and day out as your voice of freedom in the Delaware Valley. I'm attorney Mike Giramita from Giramita Law Offices, but everybody knows me as Mike G. And you're listening to Mike G. in the morning with The Law Matters. And you can listen to our program Every Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. So let's be heard. You know, we've got a very important day today. Remembering September 11th and the events that took place on September 11th, 2001. Our hearts go out to everybody who lost a loved one on that day. Our hearts go out to all of those whose family members have been impacted for various reasons based upon the events of that day. And we want to thank everybody who made sacrifices on that day and in the aftermath of those events. So today's episode will be dedicated to September 11th, and we've got a panel of guests who will join us, everybody with different perspectives, different experiences, and we look forward to getting to hear all of them. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G. in the Morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. We've got a very special guest with us this morning. Karen Drum is no doubt a staple in the Second Amendment community here in Pennsylvania. have known her from seminars all around for the last couple of years. Karen, are you with us? I am. Karen, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, just uh, so our audience understands, how long have you been involved in supporting our Second Amendment?
1: Actually, since 2013, um, it's a little late bloomer, but uh, Sandy Hook woke me up, and um, that was when I started to get involved in Second Amendment, in firearms, and activism, and so forth.
0: And what was it that woke you up about uh, that particular event? Was it the government's response in trying to disarm law-abiding citizens in the aftermath? Exactly. So, so, what kind of things did you do getting involved? I know you said you were a late bloomer, so so getting started out, what was that like for you?
1: Um, it was new territory, but it was something that I felt very comfortable with from the very beginning. Uh, I purchased a firearm, my first firearm. Um, I had already had a hunting rifle at that point. Um, which I was using, um, but I hadn't had a handgun um, and it was um, difficult getting used to wearing it all the time. But um, I did, I wear it everywhere that I can legally wear it. And I just felt, um, felt safe, felt um, confident and felt like for once I was exercising my constitutional rights.
0: Uh, now, I, Coming in uh, late, as you said, did you find that the people in the Second Amendment community were different than what is typically portrayed in the media? Oh, absolutely. They want to make we're us just... all out to be a bunch of nut jobs, don't they? <laughs>
1: yep, and we're just common, everyday folks who love our country and love our freedom and liberty.
0: And have you found that people in the Second Amendment community are pretty friendly, generally speaking? Absolutely. They're the the
1: best people to be around.
0: I agree 100%. Now, uh, shifting gears, you talked about people who love our country. I know that you yourself have some ties to 9-11, and I think you've really got an interesting perspective on this. A lot of the people we'll be speaking to throughout the episode uh, we're in New York at the time. Native New Yorkers. You've got a, a little bit of a different perspective here. So why don't you tell our audience a little bit about uh, your connection to 9-11 and, and what you did for a living?
1: Okay. I was a Bucks County police dispatcher. Um, and at the time when that happened, I, we, I just could not imagine what those dispatchers in New York had gone through that day. Um, and a group of us from our radio room, we decided to go up and visit them uh, within a couple weeks after the event. It was actually early October, and um, just show our support. Brought them some food, sat with them, talked with them, and just spent the day with them. We uh, walked around New York and bought coffee for the police officers. Looked at, you know, the the debris and the mess that New York was. Um, talked to people. Went to the church. Went to see all the the signs everywhere that said, you know, have you seen my loved one? And um, it was just so impactful that uh, it be, it started to define my life at that point. Um, I also went back up there with a law enforcement fellowship that I belonged to through my church. We went to ground zero. Um, there's so much to it. I met people. I saw a picture of a gentleman whose memorial wristband I was wearing that I had purchased at my church. I asked two cops that I met, I said, did you happen to know Mark Ellison? I was on the platform at Ground Zero and they said to me, oh, yeah, we knew Mark very well. And he said, I said, turn around, there's this picture. So I got to see this young fellow's picture of this, this name band that I was wearing Um i I went up every other weekend after that, from November through May when Ground Zero closed in two thousand and two to the Salvation Army tent, which was at the Medical examiner's office um, And uh, that's where they we would serve food, uh, coffee, and food. and that's where all of the um, responders were bringing in the recovered remains from Ground Zero. Um, and it was heartbreaking, life changing. Um, just so sad to see what these people were going through. And we just tried to speak with them, pray with them, feed them and comfort them in any way that we could. And, um, it was the most wonderful thing that I was ever able to do because I, when it happened, I felt like I need to do something. What can I do? And, um, that's what the Lord led me to do.
0: Now, do you think this is a truly traumatic experience uh, for the dispatchers as well? Because that's something that I don't think people will often think about. They think about the people who are out there uh, running into the buildings and things of that nature. They don't think about the people who are handling God knows how many calls on that day.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for recognizing that because dispatchers are not not recognized as first responders. I understand now recently they are, but we really are the first responder in the sense that we take those calls and we take, we listen to the people who are experiencing the worst moment of their life. And at a lot of times we don't get closure. We hang up and we go on to the next call, and we hang up, we go on to the next call. We dispatch out to the police, we go on to the next call. And uh, yes, Those people were traumatized um, probably um, as much as some of the people who were actually there at Ground Zero and and, and, uh, involved in it because you feel helpless. You feel like, oh, my gosh, I wish there was more that I could do. So, yes, thank you for, for recognizing that.
0: Absolutely. Now, why do you think it is that you felt that connection to go in and and help in multiple different ways being from Pennsylvania and going all the way out there to New York to help these people feeling that need. Do you think it stems from your faith?
1: I think it stems from my faith and it stems from that morning when I walked in the grocery store, I had off from work that day. Uh, It was a gorgeous day. I walked into the grocery store at just after the first plane hit. I didn't know anything had happened. I walked in and everybody was gathered around this TV in front of the grocery store. And I was like, what's going on? And I walked over and I saw it on TV. And my first thought was, I am so afraid in my, this is the first time that I'm afraid in my own country. Mm
2: -hmm. And I
1: walked down the toilet paper aisle, I'll never forget it. And I just started crying my eyes out and I felt fear. And I guess my response was, there's something I have to be able to do. And uh, that's that's what, what I decided that whatever I can do, I will do.
0: I'm sure you ended up touching a lot of people's lives through that. Is there anybody who perhaps remains in contact today? Because I'm sure they're very appreciative of the things that you did all that time.
1: No, you know, like I never even knew anyone's name. Um, they were just faces, sad, broken faces that... Came through, and we were just there to comfort. Um, Never really got anyone's name. um, Never kept in, you know, was not able to keep in contact with anyone. I know that myself and the other um, fellow that I went up with. um, I know that we did help, and we we did touch their lives, and and they touched ours uh, in a tremendous way. And that's really all that matters. Um, I hope that. They're still alive today, and I know there's a lot of people who have a lot of illnesses because of it. I belong to the World Trade Center Health Registry in case something, some medical condition would have developed for me, um, so I am registered, but I understand there's over 800 people that have died uh, from World Trade Center 9-11-related um, uh, illnesses
0: since then. Um, An uncle of mine being one of them, unfortunately. Uh, Oh. And when we were at the funeral, one of the things the pastor said, and I don't think it gets said often enough, was, you know, we we thought we lost a couple of thousand Americans in that tragedy on that day. But truly, I don't think we'll know for decades how many lives were lost based on the events of that day. And that is so true. Um, so we really appreciate everything that you did going out there. Is there anything that you'd want our audience to know about keeping the memory of of those whose lives were lost on 9/11 alive, and the people who were involved in uh, the rescue efforts? Is there anything that you'd want the audience to know?
1: You know, um, I have a, a a brick planted at the Hartsville Fire Company, and and i Warminster, that says um, my dispatcher number, and it says, I never forgive, never forget, never forgive. And I, some people say it's not a very Christian thing to say about never forgiving, but it was pure evil. And I don't know that God calls us to forgive pure evil. He knows my heart, and I can't forgive those people who did that. But I call on the American people, never forget. And there is, there will always be evil, and this can always happen again. So we have to be vigilant. We have to be prepared and um, we have to um, exercise our freedom and liberty and stand for our freedom and liberty and stand for protecting our country because what happened was horrible and we absolutely do not want that to happen again. And my heart goes out to every one of the family members, friends, survivors, co-workers, everyone involved, the first responders. Uh, every year, this, heartbra- this is a heartbreaking time. And um I was blessed to be able to help in the small way that I did.
0: Well, thank you so much for what you've done, Karen. And thank you so much for joining us. We hope to have you back on the program again soon.
1: Thank you very much, Mike.
0: For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G. in the Morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. You know, we've got the gang of maniacs here with us today, a group of folks, regulars on this program, all to share a little bit about their perspective on 9-11, keep the memory alive. We've got Philly Chris, as always. Philly Chris, you there? Good morning, everyone. We've got Russ. We've got Mr. Kerry Scott. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. We've got Sean from New York. Sean?
2: I'm here Mike
0: And Jenny from the block, you with us?
2: Hey guys
0: You know, a lot of different perspectives Uh, A couple of us, a few of us from New York And were there at the time uh, At least in the greater New York City area Sean, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your experience on 9-11 You weren't even in high school at the time, were you?
3: No, I was in middle school, Mike
0: And you were in Staten Island at the time?
3: I was. I wasn't far from the Staten Island Ferry, actually.
0: And you have family members who were firefighters, correct?
3: oh uh, yes. My yes, my father was. Uh, one of my uncles was, and um, one uncle had just retired.
0: So, what was that like on that day with your father? You know, having that job with your uncle, having that job, and you know, coming from a family of Civ, uh, people involved in civil service and well
3: it was a day like,
0: they it, gonna started,
3: it was a day unlike any other but it had started out like a day like any other um i remember kids were being called uh to go home and after a few maybe about five or six i started to realize something was up and i got an uneasy feeling and i remember my dad actually had a he came to my class and got me out of, got me out of school uh, himself instead of, you know, being called down. And he took me and he said there was, I guess because of lack of communication back then, we didn't, you know, I think nine 11 did, you know, spark a new technological revolution. Anyway, he did say something had happened in Manhattan and he had to go, uh, he had to go work with his guys to go see how it happened. To to see see what happened. But um, that's not what got me. What had gotten me was, about two days before, we I got out of school early, and my dad took me to Burger King, and I met a guy, had just met him, and he had passed away, had died in the rubble about not even 48 hours later. Wow. And when We used to go to Blockbuster back in the day, and that was one of my highlight, uh, childhood highlights so we rented a movie called Men of Honor with Shuba uh, Gooding Jr. and Robert De Niro. Great right. movie. It's yeah. about Carl Brashear, the first Black Navy diver. Anyway, um, I remember had watching the movie with him, and I was going to go walk my dog, and my dad was upstairs. We had the old phones with the cords, you know, the old home phones. And he was on the phone, and it was with his job, and he said he couldn't make it in. And, I mean, he doesn't talk about it, but from what I remember he turned down overtime and I think the kid that took it was, uh, that got him killed. He was one of the younger guys that had gotten on the job.
0: Oh my goodness.
3: Yeah. That is and, um, real
0: crazy stuff.
3: It is. You, you don't realize, you don't really know who you have got till they're gone, but, um, you really don't appreciate the people in life until you realize that you are vulnerable to losing them just like anybody else is.
0: Yeah. And so that night, you know, after your dad tells you that he's got to go down there and everything, what was it like waiting for him to come home?
3: Um, it was the weirdest thing. It was like the longest day of my life. Mm-hmm. Um I had just been in I was just in middle school and my you know, my brain wasn't fully developed, you know, to you know, comprehend danger and stuff. But um he always made this slurping sound, sipping coffee. And it was kind of, I always found it kind of uh, annoying, (laughs) but in all the good ways. And the next morning um, I had gotten out of bed and I heard that sound. It was like the the most annoying sound became the greatest sound ever. (laughs) (laughs) And um, he was sitting in the red ottoman chair and um, he told me like, Lots of guys, I am going to say he, from what he said, dozens of guys were confirmed to be killed and hundreds are missing or however it was. I, I, I that was 19 years ago. So it's almost to the day. Yeah. So that's, I remember I, had, I, I met, we had gone on vacation uh, to Hawaii and we were, you know, we were talking fire department stuff. We were going for like a nice little hike, just a father and something. And we were, you know, we had watched the movie The Longest Day and there was a scene where a general got killed. And so I asked my dad, dad has, a, has a chief ever gotten, you know, killed on the fire department? He said, yeah, there was, uh, many years ago, there was uh, a battalion chief. And then even before that, there was an assistant chief. That's the rank after a battalion chief. But then I, I found out that uh, chief of department, Peter Gancy had died. And then my, my brain, you know, my, you know, 12-year-old brain or whatever said, you know, if that could happen to him, it could, it can happen to anybody.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah, that's,
3: that's pretty much what I remember about the day.
0: Uh, that, that's, uh, you know, an experience that I'm sure you'll never forget. Um, I'm sure you're very thankful that they made it home, and uh, it's got to be tough to, uh, you know, deal with the loss that uh, your father must have endured on that day. A lot of colleagues and a lot of friends, right?
3: It sure is. Yeah. Um, you know we've talked about it you know here and there about you know going back for a ceremony and it's really hard for guys to go back some you know the, some of the bravest soldiers can't do it I, mm. I, I can't blame them for that i can't fault them for that mm.
0: uh. well, well please do uh send him our best and our thanks uh we know you've got to run you got a short day this morning but uh we always love having you on the program sean
3: Thanks, Mike. I'll, uh, I'll say a prayer to the lost souls and the St. Florian. You know, we're good Catholics. We'll, uh, Mike, I really appreciate it. God bless you.
0: <laughs> God bless you. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G. in the Morning with The Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. Now it's time to get some real maniacs in on the conversation. Billy Chris, you there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I'm here. There you go. You're out on the out on the road uh, this morning, uh, Chris. You know, yeah. as someone who were you living in Philly at the time?
4: Yeah, I was uh, living in Pennsylvania in the suburbs, working for um, a, you know a large company in financial services, and it was at work that morning actually when that happened. And we had some TVs because we used to take a look at market information sometimes. So after the first plane struck, um, people had put it on the monitors there in my building and we were watching it actually when the second plane hit the building, um, live. So I happened to see that. And then, uh, you know, there was immediate confirmation that obviously this was more than some sort of accident. I kind of questioned that even after the first plane, because it's pretty extraordinary for a modern line, you know, modern day jetliner, I should say to, to crash into any structure, let alone one of the, the trade center buildings. So, but yeah, I saw the uh, second airplane go in live, and just couldn't believe it. It was uh, horrifying to see and witness. Yeah, you know?
0: you know that's interesting. We've got Kerry, who's a pilot, on with us. Correct, Carrie? I am. And so, tell us a little bit about that. What uh, Philly Chris said about.
5: Well, here's the thing. Um, modern day jetliner, really, you know. Any plane, like let's just say $100,000 and up, uh, certainly these things cost you know, $30 million and up, uh, has so many. Um, uh, well, first off, there were so many systems that were quickly disabled on it, um, but anti collision systems, there's there's at least, never phone a at 737, at least two redundancies that would cause that not to happen. The other thing, is that remember these guys weren't pilots; they were student pilots who had never flown a jet. They had never even flown a multi-engine propeller airplane, and they flew not one, but two planes at high speed. And these these are not super maneuverable planes, but at high speed with pinpoint accuracy, right into the World Trade Center over 300 miles per hour over the ground. Not once, but twice. So. Um, if what Julie Chris is saying is that it just seems a bit, maybe the story doesn't, you know, that maybe there's more to it. If that's what you're saying. Um, yeah.
0: Well, it I mean, sounds to me like he was saying <laughs> there's no way it could have been an accident, um, and you're saying – Oh, an accident. Well, you're saying – it sounds like you're taking it a step further that, you know uh, – well, because he was talking about when he first saw it, he he recognized this, this is no accident, you know, and most people pick that up after the second oh. one, but – for someone who knows about this stuff, it might be well, you know, it's for something who happened to happen at part all, it's not an accident. It, and you're taking a step further saying not it, only is it not an it, accident, conspiracy.
5: but I'm just, yeah.
0: Yeah, you're I'm saying sorry, that it would be very, very difficult to do on pers- uh, on purpose, let alone an accident, right?
5: Well, not once, not twice, but you take um uh you got the Pentagon and you've got Somerset, Pennsylvania four times with box cutters and how'd they find the box cutters. But listen, there could be a whole entire, um, and there's been 19 years of it, uh, conspiracy or how did this happen or who was involved? And, you know, was it done by, by these, um, you know, guys who are in caves? I don't want to go there. Um, but what I will say is that, yeah, given the technology, it, it's, it just, it, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't make sense. And no, you certainly would, as far as it being an accident, yeah, no, you certainly wouldn't think that that would be uh, an accident uh, I
0: know you were living over that way at the time. I want to get back to that in a minute. But first, I want to ask Russ a question, because Russ is the youngin of the bunch. You know, Uh, Kerry's, what, 50 or 60. Billy (laughs) Chris is about 100. And
6: uh, And Russ, how old are you? Uh, I'm in my mid-20s. In the mid-20s, I'm so, not even
5: going to give you a comeback this week, <laughs> <laughs> No comeback this week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about that. Uh, yeah. Russ, so how old were you when, you know, roughly when this was taking place? You were a really young
6: kid at the time, no? So, because it took place in 2001, I would have been in second grade, and in September I would have been six. And wow. At first I thought, you know, when I had first heard about, you know, some, some jack wagon, uh, they, they didn't use that. They used some, I don't know, mid two thousands terms, um, or, or early, um, you know, some some idiot flew a plane into a building. I thought, oh, okay, well, it was probably an accident, and that's horrible. And, you know, my six-year-old brain didn't really know how to process that. I either thought it was an accident or, you know, something malfunctioned. I, I had no ability to even uh, come up with the idea that it would have been done on purpose. I thought, you know, okay, well, it was... It was either malfunction or somebody was drunk or, or something. And uh, yeah. I remember my mom was really upset. And, you know, we went home early from school. And, you know, the the world had changed forever. And I was just completely oblivious to most of it. It wasn't until about 10 years later when I was in high school in 2010 or uh, 2011 that I actually could get my head around what had actually happened.
0: Mm. That's another interesting perspective, because not only were you young, but you're you're not there in New York, so it's a little bit different. Now, Kerry, do you know who Corey Lytle is? Does that name sound familiar? Repeat the name. Corey Lytle. He's a pitcher for the New York Yankees.
5: Yes. He's one of many people who's flown a plane into a building over the years.
0: All right. Uh, do you know anything about that? Sir? I just rung a bell in my head. It says October 11, 2006, Lytle and Copa, well, what the flight is, instructor. what uh,
5: happened he did what's, what we call um, CFIT, controlled flight into terrain, which means you flow, fly a perfectly good airplane um, into something by accident. That happens a lot lately, actually, when people are, like, messing with their iPad or something like that, and you know, you lose track at 30 seconds and the plane's moving real fast, and that's what happened there. He just he veered off the road essentially, and and that's what happens in an airplane when you veer off the road, so to speak. Mm. If that's what you're asking,
0: just just curious. You're talking about flying planes into buildings. You know, in
5: 1930 something or other, a B I think it was a B12 bomber, a B something bomber, a large plane was flown into the Empire State Building. Um, you know, there's been a lot of these incidents that have happened. And but again, I don't want to get into, you know, these buildings didn't come down, but, um, yeah, I don't, you know, so when, you know, I, mean, when, I think that's, you that's Billy the whole, Chris uh, territory right stuff, there, right? It's a different, it's a different, yeah, it's a different subject <laughs> matter, but, um, did yeah, yeah, fly a plane much, much, much smaller, uh, you know, that weighed about 1,300 pounds into, um, a building. He was flying up the East River in what's known as the um Safra, the special flight rules area of the uh of the New York City um area, basically this the scenic route, quite literally. Uh, now Jenny, you there you still with
2: us? Yes, I'm still here. Right?
0: Okay. Uh so you lived in Jersey growing up, right? Yeah, North so, Jersey. Well, what was it like uh being you know, close to the city, but but not quite there, over in New Jersey. How did that uh, feel as a kid? You know, what's your perspective on, on the whole day as it took place?
2: I mean, I feel like for me, um, I don't really like to speak about it too much because I know there was people who I knew who knew somebody whose fathers were injured or there. And those are the people I really think of, like what it must have felt like watching that on TV and not knowing if your loved one was going to come home. Um, so from that time period, they huddled us into a room at the school. So it was really scary. And at the time we were similar to what Sean was saying and Russ, like you couldn't, you were processing it, but not really quite sure exactly what it all meant, you know? And, um, for me, I just remember, to be honest, not so much during that period, but more of looking for answers after being terrified every time I looked in the sky and saw a plane flying, um, And I think a lot of people felt like that. And so that's when my politics and I was always pretty political from my dad being in the Vietnam war and everything. Um, but that's when I was really looking to the president I wanted to see strength. I wanted to see what are you going to do about this? And that's kind of what I remember. And just my interest in politics was just even more, I don't even want to say politics, you know, it's not really politics It's people's lives, but I was just, I wanted to hear a message of strength because I was generally scared. Um, you know, I just always remember paying attention to fl- planes flying overhead and looking at that type of um, perspective when I was that age. So, yeah,
0: definitely. And the, the aftermath of the events, I, I think that was certainly common among New Yorkers. Uh, politics uh, were, for the most part, put aside in favor of, you know, let's get behind our leader. We're looking for strength. Kind of what you said. I know you, you painted it as you became political as a result, but you said what you were looking for was strength, with leadership. Kerry, right. mm-hmm. do you remember that? Do you remember being in New York right after 9-11? It just felt like there was, was an attitude where people were yeah. coming together. Everybody was on the same team and uh, wanted to bounce back and everything like that. It, it, it almost didn't feel like new york because obviously new york is known as uh i don't even uh, i don't even know what to call it but uh it's a, a liberal uh
5: Feisty. oh yeah.
0: <laughs> i don't want to call it a cesspool but,
5: <laughs> but yeah. you, you well, know what i mean it. right with uh, that well here's the thing first off um if it, and I'm just digressing for one second. If it, I wonder what would happen if it happened today with so so much anti-American sentiment. I think there would be like uh, back then there was pockets of people that were reported of um, that were cheering and happy, but this was just a little. Uh, there was jubilation someplace, and you know, there was there was uh, physical altercations obviously because of it. But I, I wonder what would happen happen now, and how people would, maybe that's a topic for a whole different show, how yeah, would people no, that, would that, that is, an interesting, that that is yeah. an interesting point,
0: that is an interesting point, you know, when you're, when you're talking but, about the reaction today as opposed to back then, and it, we we forget this sometimes, but people did really dislike George Bush, there's was, there was plenty of hatred to go around for, for George Bush, but it seems like even in New York, which is Obviously, got uh, behind. They got behind. The majority them right? They got behind him, absolutely. I, I don't know that I can see President Trump standing over at Ground Zero and people supporting him like that. Certainly, I think uh, the NYPD would come out and support him uh, or people like that. But it seems like there would be, be so much hostility. Uh, can we really be on the same team like that these days? It's only you know uh, 19 years later.
2: If I yeah. may, I don't know if this is going too far, but even President Trump today, um, he was speaking about the coronavirus and everything. And and obviously you can't compare that, but people have died from the coronavirus. It's a serious thing. But he was saying, you know, he knew a lot of information and he didn't want to scare everybody in the beginning. And he really wanted to send a message of strength. And I think that that is very important for a country when we're being attacked or, or something's going on in any way. And I still hang on to that. And I think that that's a really good leadership quality to have and I think that that was the main thing with, pres- with President Bush he was just we're not going to take this we're going to do something about this because people right. want to justice too.
0: But the way they're framing that is that he lied right they're saying oh well you didn't tell us how, how serious yeah, it was that's so what, right. would they expect him think, to, think- if, if the in the aftermath of some kind of an attack like this would they expect him to go out there and be like we're all going to die ladies and gentlemen oh my goodness yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah.
4: I mean I it makes you wonder too,
0: like Trump.
4: From I, I was watching a, some of the terrific points. Hey, let Chris, Chris talk. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I was just saying that, you know, to take you back on Jenny from the block there, you know, um, I was watching the clips. They were playing on CNN a little bit today with Trump talking about the coronavirus early on. But he always qualified it. He always said, you know, I hope so. Or, you know, maybe, you know, he wasn't saying it would definitely get better or definitely go away. So I think he was just trying to show that strength and have a positive outlook on a horrible situation to keep everybody on the same page, you know, working toward
0: a solution. And, you know, it's beyond
4: his control. So I don't know how they blame him.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And the measures that he did take at the time, obviously, he, he caught a ton of heat for that. Gary, go ahead.
5: Yeah, but I was going to say that, uh, Well, I guess uh, yeah, I agree with Jenny from the block and of course, you know, Chris is just saying is that I think that, I mean, it's a tight rope for a leader to have to walk, but I think that one thing to not do, I mean, what else can you do is to not get up and literally cause pandemonium and start freaking out. I mean, you have to have some semblance of, uh, as Jenny pointed out, um, you know, to be, I mean, to be cool, calm and collect. And then people of course will say, you know, you didn't react strongly enough, and but I think George Bush did the did the best he could. What what, what can you do?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult situation. Now, Kerry, you were in the area at that time, right?
5: Yeah. Well, I was at, at the very moment I was in I was in uh, um, basically on on the beach in uh, Monmouth County, New Jersey. Although I lived in Manhattan at the time, but uh, so I saw the building smoking and all that stuff. I saw everybody running to the beach. But living in Manhattan at the time, very quickly thereafter, as a, as a curious person, I went down there um, several of the days after. And I remember the first time I went down was five days after. And uh, it was very traumatic for me. And I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's a horrible obviously it's a horrible thing and but, but you know, it's 19 years later, people have said what sticks with me and it's truly traumatic. Um, I remember it extremely well is, is this, the smell, the smell of death, literally Absolutely. it'll, uh, it'll never leave me. It makes me, you know, the, uh, the other quote, the lady had said, um, you had interviewed had said that, you know, she's having a lot of trouble forgiving or, uh, forgetting rather forgiving, forgiving. And, I know where she's coming from because when you're actually there and you, you you smell it and you know what you're smelling, and I, I don't want to be graphic, but um, we all know what, how serious this is. Uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty tough pill to swallow, and uh, I think people were happy at the time not to get ahead of it but, uh, that 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 uh, bombs were being lobbed and missiles were being uh, fired. But again, that's I'm sure for another another show.
0: Russ, you've got the clip of George Bush speaking in the aftermath.
6: Yes. um, This is from, if I could grab the right mouse here, um, the evening, I believe it is, of uh, 9-11. Let's bring this up.
7: Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. The pictures of airplanes flying into buildings fires burning, huge, huge structures collapsing, have filled us with disbelief, terrible sadness, and a quiet, unyielding anger. These acts of mass murder were intended to frighten our nation into chaos and retreat, but they have failed. Our country is strong. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world, and no one will keep that light from shining. Today our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Immediately following the first attack, I implemented our government's emergency response plans. Our military is powerful and it's prepared. Our emergency teams are working in New York City and Washington DC to help with local rescue efforts. Our first priority is to get help to those who have been injured and to take every precaution to protect our citizens at home and around the world from further attacks. The functions of our government continue without interruption. Federal agencies in Washington, which had to be evacuated today, are reopening for essential personnel tonight and will be open for business tomorrow. Our financial institutions remain strong and the American economy will be open for business as well. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. I appreciate so very much the members of Congress who have joined me in strongly condemning these attacks. And on behalf of the American people, I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Tonight I ask for your prayers for all those who grieve for the children whose worlds have been shattered, for all whose sense of safety and security has been threatened. And I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us, spoken through the ages in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. This is a day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down en- enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Thank you. Good night, and God bless America.
0: Wow. Brings you back there. Uh... Chris, I've got a question for you. Do you remember sure. what it was like on airplanes prior to
4: 9-11? Yeah, I do. You know, and, and it was definitely different after, yeah.
0: Because you got to keep in mind that, you know, for the people of my generation, unless you flew a whole lot as a kid, you know, the post-9-11 system that we saw come into place is really all we've known growing up, you know?
4: Yeah, I remember even when I was young, I flew a couple times, not a lot, but um, I remember distinctly being allowed to even go in the cockpit and the pilots would give you these little plastic wings, you know, to children. I'd flown a couple times to Florida with my parents when I was young. So, you know, went from having an open cockpit environment to completely sealed off with,
0: you know, new security doors and security protocols. So, What about even like the the check-in process, though?
4: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, now, you know, after that, it was a much more thorough inspection. You had to take your shoes off, and they were swabbing you for explosives, and, you know, they restricted the uh, the types of fluids you could bring on board, and they went through your baggage in more detail, and you, you, sometimes they had to throw things away if they weren't compliant. So, yeah, that was a big thing, too. All
0: right, taking off the belt and the shoes and everything like that, it wasn't like that, right. in both ways, was it?
4: no.
5: No, it wasn't. Same thing to this day.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's one of the, the, the permanent types of changes that we've seen in the aftermath. And you know, a lot of people I remember the debate about the, the freedom versus security thing during those times. Uh some of some of them seem pretty similar to what we're dealing with today with respect to the pandemic and all, because You have people saying, well, no, I'm not willing to give up my liberty uh, in the name of protecting us from the terrorists, just the way a lot of people are saying that about uh, the virus itself. It seemed at that point in time, uh, people were more willing on the right to sacrifice liberty to protect from terrorists, whereas today it seems like the people on the right are saying, no, I'm not going to be, you know, subjected to all of the restrictions that you're placing on all of us. Is that fair to say? Does anybody else notice that?
5: Uh, what I, I like agree is that I think we learned a lesson, which is that if the government takes a liberty, they're not giving it back. I think people might have thought back then that, oh, this is just a temporary inconvenience. Mm. No, and same with COVID. Um, and I have said this at the very beginning, whatever it's gonna be real tough getting back any anything. I mean, you know, government doesn't give liberties back.
0: Uh, that's a that's an interesting I, I point. Think, so you think this mask thing's gonna be permanent? Well
2: that I think that's what he's saying. You think it's gonna be permanent,
5: right? Uh, I think there's going to be things the that mask. are, well, the mask, I don't know. I mean, it's, We're getting into the weeds with the whole thing, but uh, it's. Uh,
2: it, c- could I say something to that? I think maybe like for 9-11, we all saw it right front and center. Some people had some different theories about it, et cetera, but we all saw it. Whereas a coronavirus or China virus, everybody is seeing it from a different perspective. Some people see nobody that was affected by it. Some people had family members. Some had some that died. So, I think it's a lot more, I guess, controversial. I don't know. Maybe that's the reason.
0: Philly, Chris, what do you thought?
2: Yeah, you know, it is interesting to compare the two. And
4: I believe the Patriot Act came out after the 9 11 events happened, which significantly changed, you know, a lot of our civil liberties and allowed, um, you know, the Bush administration to look at electronic data for. Um, not just terrorists, but U.S. citizens. So, you know, I think that was a stepping stone, you know, bridge, if you will, or, you know, a step to where we are now with some of those civil liberties being. Um, it's strange, gone. though, because
0: people on the right seemed yeah. on board at the time. Like, yep, you know, we got to do right. what we got to do, yeah. you know. <laughs> That's
4: right. Yeah, people right. were definitely more willing at that time to give up their freedoms. A lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything wrong. But, you know, eventually, uh, we could look at any type of electronic data and decide you're doing something wrong if they are looking at it, I guess. So that's one of those things to be concerned about. So, yeah, a lot has changed.
0: Yeah, that did seem like sort of a, a more liberal thing back then, didn't it? Right. Uh, the whole, hey, leave me alone. It's my right and everything. And people saying on the right saying, well, you know, if you've got nothing to hide, then what's the difference? And it that just blows my mind to hear that today. I don't. I don't know many people on the right who would say that same thing today.
4: Uh, Yeah, I think you're right, Mike, and I think fortunately people are more aware of of what can happen when those civil liberties are trampled on.
0: Is it fair to say that the whole Republican-Democrat platform is entirely different than it was just 19 years ago when you think about it?
5: I, I think absolutely. Definitely. I think there's a parallel, yeah. if I could say, between uh, this and, um, or or a, a lesson, that I think that especially freedom-loving people, which seems to be even more patriotic for sure, on the right, it's fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, uh, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me, where people <laughs> are like, even about the masks, like, all right, wait a second, not so <laughs> fast, okay, what's going to stay, what's up here, um, and people uh yeah you know, the patriot act it wasn't patriotic right i mean it's right uh, right they, they gave it these names but I, I mean i'm preaching to the choir with this but uh if anybody wants to expand on that. You, you
0: you almost botched the fool me once quote as bad as george <laughs> w bush did russ you gotta pull up the george w bush uh I was just that—that that, that is one oh, of the no. greatest of all time. Yeah, make sure you get that before the end of the episode. Let me know when you when you got it because our audience has got to hear this. Okay, well, but it's
6: it's I, absolutely an excellent point. I I have some That's comments funny. to insert here. Um, <clears throat> I think the political climate—I—I I think there are parallels between uh, COVID and nine eleven, but there's also some very contrasty differences. For 9-11, there was, um, there was something that you could see. There was an enemy that people could witness. There was something to rally behind. This coronavirus thing, on the other hand, uh, it's become very political, and if you haven't known anybody who's gotten it, then it's essentially very much like a boogeyman. This thing could be anywhere at any time and could be carried by anybody, so watch out, you know, it's and right. you know, if you see nobody around you getting it, then okay, either these methods are effective, which they don't seem to be, um, or it's just a bunch of hokum. So, you know, and, and when when there's been spikes, there's been uh, you know, ups and downs. there's been lots and lots of death. You can attribute that to the coronavirus, okay, or you can look at you know, why did these people die? Some of them had pre-existing conditions and <laughs> and um, you know, other people were just elderly and and but whereas 9 eleven it was, yeah, they uh, they either burned to death or a building fell on them. Or, you know, something, or they jumped out of the building because they didn't want to burn to death or be squashed by a building. Um, so there's there's some commonalities and there's some huge differences. And I think the coronavirus has been very political, and that's why it's very different.
0: And, that's, that's another also, point. We're talking about how, regardless of political affiliation, it seemed like there was some kind of unity in the aftermath of 9-11 so that's a good point well, go ahead jenny
2: but then it also got it always gets controversial so then it got controversial whereas we who who were terrorists and um you know a lot of the racist stuff came into play again right so it's always mm-hmm. it always goes back to that and people arguing back and forth over something no matter what you know so well um it's became pretty contentious pretty quickly after that
6: (laughs) well that that's another parallel that i would draw is we all go through or i mean i've never flown but you know i've i've known people that have flown um but you know we all go through the tsa song and dance of okay remove your belt uh do you have any you know metal limbs or whatever can you remove those too um you know Uh, You know, (laughs) empty your pockets of any loose change, empty, you know, put your cell phone there. Everyone's treated as if they are a potential terrorist uh, Mm because you don't know who could be. You don't know what evil people might be harboring in their heart. And the same thing with coronavirus. You don't know who has it because it doesn't show symptoms until, oh, it's been two weeks and you had it the whole time. So, it's did, have you not flown, Ross, um, because you're on the do-not-fly list? Or, you know, right? uh, no, I just don't care to <laughs> go into that a one plane
3: instance. and go <laughs> anywhere. Right, right, right. <laughs> Is there something going on
6: there? No, I just don't. Uh-oh. I don't get out much. <laughs> uh, okay. I thought i saw your picture
0: uh-huh. at the airport, Ross. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> I
6: will say,
5: if I could interject, um, ironically, I love how the goalposts are constantly moved with all this stuff because I just got that well, about a month ago, I, I flew to Los Angeles in a coronavirus, allegedly coronavirus strain, and uh, and um, they allowed me, okay, hand sanitizers is, is you know it's alcohol it's flammable, it's a flammable gel anyway. I had a big thing of of hand sanitizer in my bag. And of course, you know, anything that's over 1.5 ounces gets thrown out. Even if it's a bottle of water, you have to buy it past the security checkpoint. I had this big thing of um, uh, of hand sanitizer. And I said, oh, well, I, I need that, you know. And, and I said the magic word. I said, COVID. And she's like, oh, well, we're letting this through now. It's like, oh. <laughs> okay. And absolutely, I was... Huh. I was no less than 32 ounces of, the, of, of this, uh, you know, flammable gel. So, so right now it's okay. And, you know, they just move it around and oh. whatever.
2: Yeah. Wow. Hey, I have a question too. Um, Not to interrupt, Carrie, but I was just curious about uh, Mike G in the morning. Where were you during 9-11? And do you have any input on all this stuff?
0: Um oh, good question. Yeah, I was freshman in high school and a little bit different than what Sean said because the first hint we had that something was going on was that some girl ran into the classroom hysterically crying and asked to see the teacher and I went to high school in Staten Island New York in one of the five boroughs and the teacher goes out plays it cool comes back in Uh, another Student comes in hysterically crying. Teacher goes out, comes back in, thinking it's kind of strange. Uh, then one of the the staff members came and pulled the teacher out. She comes back in, doesn't say anything. We're all like, "What is going on here?" And then finally, the the assistant principal comes and gets her, and we're like, all right, you got to tell us what's going on at this point. And the the teacher goes in. She goes, Miss Carr, I'll never forget her, Irish lady. She passed away, uh, God rest her soul. But she said, hey, you know, you might as well know. It seems that uh, terrorists have flown a uh, plane into the World Trade Center. And uh, I know we're not supposed to pray in school right now, but I don't care. We're praying, <laughs> and we all no. prayed. And there were people in the classroom whose parents worked in the city, and the kid sitting next to me, Timmy, whose father was a firefighter who never came home that evening oh. uh, you know there there were a lot of people I knew who who lost loved ones uh, the guy who I fought with for for many, many years, trained martial arts um uh, his close family member was FDNY. He passed away. He's just, uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of good people didn't come home that day. Uh, we went to lunch, and that's when one of the security guards had a little TV. We saw that the second tower came down, and, you know, we didn't know. One of my friends, their, their father was a firefighter. It was actually uh, her birthday. And... On her birthday, her dad didn't, uh, you know, come home till the wee hours of the night. He did make it home. You know, a lot of people who are dealing with the physical impact, like Karen spoke about. You know, firefighters who have breathing problems, lung problems. People like my uncle who were involved in, uh, you know, looking for bodies and the cleanup and the aftermath. And he passed away. In his early 50s, you know, dealing with cancers and everything like that. So that uh, it was, it was a very difficult day for the United States of America. But uh, what we can do is we can remember it, we can learn from it, we can learn from the aftermath. And, uh, you know, I really do appreciate all of you. I call you folks my. My gang of maniacs. My <laughs> <laughs> gang of maniacs joining us this morning. Um, that's all the time we've got for today. Stick around for We the People, The Constitution Matters. Pastor David Whitney, Professor Phil Duffy, I'll be joining as your legal analyst. Stay safe and God bless, folks. <laughs>